0: is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naaman, your host. I'm very honored to have Mary Rufel stop by the studio today while she's in town, brought here by Portland State University and Tin House for a joint-sponsored event. Mary Ruffel is a poet, essayist, and erasure artist. She's the author of 10 Books of Poetry, most recently Trances of the Blast from Wave Books, a book of fiction entitled The Most of It, and a comic book, Go Home and Go to Bed. Her one-of-a-kind erasures of 19th century texts have been exhibited in museums and galleries, and one has been reproduced as the book A Little White Shadow, also from Wave Books. Rufel is the recipient of many honors, including a Guggenheim, a National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship, and a Whiting Award. She's also the author of Madness, Rack and Honey, a collection of her lectures that was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism, a book that poet Matthew Dickman says, is not just for poets, but for anyone interested in the human heart, the inner life, the breath exhaling a completion of an idea that will make you feel changed in some way. This is a desert island book and Publishers Weekly adds that Madness, Rack and Honey is profound, unpredictable, charming, and outright funny, which seems like a great description of Mary Rufel herself. Welcome to Between the Covers, Mary Ruffel.
0: Thanks, David. I'm happy
1: to be here. Well, when did you first know that you were a poet or wanted to be a poet?
0: I started writing as a child, and I wrote poems in elementary school beyond the normal school assignments. So I would write poems at home in my room, and there's that. And then I continued to write in high school, but I uh, was also writing stories. But I think I was too young to consciously know or make a decision. What I was going to be when I grew up is a question I still ask myself
1: every day. (laughs) Um, Was there ever an alternate? uh, I uh, wanted to be an astronaut before oh, I wanted to be there's a poet. So
0: many things I wanted to be. You know, I'm, I've always been a frustrated visual artist. Uh, I would have loved to have been a painter. Um, I come from. You know, I'm old enough that painting was uh, what I wanted to be. If I were young now, I think get um, you know doing installations and and non-genre specific. Uh, Art would would definitely be up my alley. There was a time I wanted to be an actress. There was a time I wanted to be, you know, uh, a florist, uh, a physicist. They're just whimsical daydreams that I still have. <laughs> yeah. But um, this is and doing the erasure work has been a way for me uh, a way for me to go back to those visual yearnings. Um, using image and whiteouts, well, a form of paint, after all, <laughs> it covers things opaquely. So um, consciously, it, no, it just, it it evolved. At, at one point, you realize that this is an activity that you are engaged in and will always be engaged in. I, I, there's no one point.
1: Hmm.
0: There's no one point, but I... I was doing this as a kid, you know. For, for other writers, have an experience of taking a class in college and their life is forever changed. I don't. I don't have that experience.
1: Do uh, you have any experiences with individual poems or poets that early on grabbed you? And- oh
0: yes, I I very much do, and I I write about this in. Um, in Madness, Rack, and Honey, I'm not sure what essay, maybe the I Remember, I Remember one, um, um, very much so. There was an anthology when I was a child, um, which I still have a copy of, by uh, Louis Untermeyer, who was a major figure in the poetry world and letters, I think in the 40s and 30s, 40s and 50s, and, and it was called... Um, the golden book of children's verse or something like that. And this is a book I devoured. I mean, I devoured it. I read it again and again and again and again. And then when I was in high school, um, there was a white anthology of European poetry and transplay- translation. That book was a, a similar book I devoured and read again and again and again and again so my first introduction to poetry was foreign poetry um, predominantly European in translation I didn't come into poetry through contemporary American poetry at all Uh, uh, that was something I read much later Um, so I could cite those two anthologies as, as important and the other really seminal moment for me You know, I've mentioned elementary school and high school, but the really big thing happened in junior high. I had a knee operation, and I had a cast from foot to thigh, and it was summer, and I couldn't move around much, and it was very hot to be outside. Um, We lived in Nebraska. There was a basement. The basement's always cooler. We had what was called in those days a rec room down there. That's where the TV was and a beat-up old sofa, and I would hang out in the rec room and probably, I don't remember, watch TV and eat ice cream or something, whatever kids do, when they're bored. And my sister was in college, and she was home from college, and she had an anthology of the British romantics, and Keats and Shelley and Coleridge and Wordsworth. and And I remember either she gave me the book to read or she read a poem out loud to me. All I know is she was at an ironing board ironing. I can see her ironing at an ironing board. And I read a poem or she read it and that moment forever changed my life. It was Ozymandias by Shelley. And I fell in love with this poem. Hmm. I completely utterly fell in love with that poem and I would read it again and again and again and again and my mind would explode every time I read it so that's the junior high moment that uh, connects the
1: other two maybe this is a good time to mm. hear the poem 13 if I remember correctly that that one has
0: yeah that's true you As, a, you're, you're, that's how astute of you you're absolutely right yeah that was the summer 13 I was 13, my whole leg in a cast. It was like lugging a piece of pottery around, and every human face I knew took a pen and wrote on me. I used to lie in bed at night and read it, and when I healed, they broke it. I walked away without a shard. Paula, Carl, whoever you are, I will not be there to drink the water beside your bed. I read 3,000 books, and then I died.
1: Hmm. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Mary Rufel, and you're listening to Between the Covers. In Madness, Rack, and Honey, Mary, you declare at the beginning an allegiance to wonder over knowledge. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What does that mean for you?
0: I would rather wonder than know. And it, it makes it more and more difficult to be alive on Earth in these times uh, when your inclination is to wonder rather than to know. Um, I suppose the example that comes to mind is, it used to be if you were having dinner with people and someone said, who's the fastest animal on Earth, everyone uh, an amazing conversation would ensue. And now someone pops their phone out and looks up the answer, and that breaks my heart. Um, mm. This idea of uh, access to answers and information, believing that they're all the truth, uh, which is not always true. Um, I, I really, really don't like it when people look things up on their iPhones, I would rather talk about... I mean, sometimes, of course, I'm no idiot. Uh, the encyclopedic nature of the information that's available is fantastic. But I still would rather wonder than know. And I think one, wondering is a way of inhabiting and lingering. It's a, it's a, it, there seems to be more, more dwelling to dwell, inhabit, and linger. I'm interested in those things. And you can do that when you don't know. We tend to, as human beings, our impulse is once we know, once we have the answer, we move on. Mm. So we're constantly moving from one thing to another, and I would rather inhabit the question or dwell. For me, um, that is the place that I want to live in. Um, I have an encyclopedia at home in... uh, it never occurred to me there was anything wrong with it till my friend pointed out it was uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, Britannica from 1910. <laughs> and it might be a little outdated, but I still look things up. Um, I still look things up in it, and it's amazingly um, detailed. I was looking uh. up the Belgian Congo, and I mean, because it was the Belgian Congo in 1910, and of course I know it no longer is, and it was like 30 pages almost transcribing a meeting in Parliament to, to decide, or something was for independence or for it was so detailed. Hmm. It was astounded me. I don't have the facts quite right, but
1: would do you think that facts and, and certainty are in opposition to poetry and art?: Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, uh, facts and certainty are not the business of an artist. You know, the business of an artist is to um, pay attention. And by paying attention, you're inhabiting a moment because you're entering a moment even though time is passing. And facts and certainty, I, I think, um, would have to do with a larger scope of time Mm. Um, and facts and certainty are always changing. I mean, they're constantly changing. We're given medical facts, I mean, that become untrue 25 years later. Right. So, uh...
1: Well, you say at the end of one poem, I think, something of the sort of, I detest exactness, and I wonder if maybe that is partly pointing to, like, a dishonesty in in it being exacted at all.
0: Well, uh, part of me is dishonest because... I also uh, am an extremely exacting person. <laughs> um, I say in a poem that I despise exactness, but if you visited my apartment, y- your overall impression would be here is a person who is obsessed with exactness. <laughs> I have to admit that, but we're all contradictory people, and I, I am no different.
1: Um, I'm very uh, full, of, full of contradictions. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to poet and essayist Mary Rufel. A a couple of weeks ago, Mary, I was at a reading of Mark Doty, and Mm -hmm. he is a a big uh, fan of Walt Whitman. Mm -hmm. And He was describing um, going to a used bookstore to pick up a copy of Leaves of Grass to bring to uh, teach, Mm -hmm. and he didn't open it before he taught. And He went and opened it, and there were all these uh, writings by a previous reader, and there's a section in Leaves of Grass where it says, uh, what is the grass? And the person in the margin writes, it's grass. And he remembers being very mad that this person would write something that way. Wow. But, but then he, he realized that this reader um, had a certain deep faith in the power of language, that, that this word grass corresponded to the thing grass and everything that grass was. And that poets were really, um, they w- were, were more oriented to the ways in le- which language didn't correspond to the mystery. Yes. And that's why Walt Whitman had to write 300 pages to answer this question. Yes. Does that resonate with you?
0: Well, I, first of all, uh, I love Walt Whitman. And I love marginalia. And I think Mark was very lucky to find this book. I love finding marginalia in old books. And that's a wonderful page. I I, I would have framed it and put it in a frame. What <laughs> is grass? It's grass. Oh, well, um, thinking about that, my mind goes a million different places, um, I could tell you about some frame marginalia I have in my apartment, or I could also tell you about my my, my Whitman sampler. Well, I'll 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 go here in direct relation to uh, Mark Doty's uh, comment on that. There is a, a a famous Buddhist lesson. It goes way back. I I can't tell you right off the top of my head where it originates, but it goes like this when I first began to study, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. After I had studied for some while, I realized that mountains were no longer mountains and rivers were no longer rivers. And after I had studied for a very long time, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. Hmm. And I've always loved that. Um, And I think that it's true, not only for spiritual seekers, but for artists and people invested in creativity and language. We, we, we go through, you know, when we're kids, grass is grass, and then grass is, we don't know what grass is, and it's a great mystery, and it becomes a, it becomes a million other things, and perhaps when we're old, it's grass is just grass again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it's uh, it, it, that little uh, quote, which of course I, I botched, but um, has to do with metaphor and a central issue of, me- of metaphor, because I think that the central area where you say mountains were, are not mountains and rivers are not rivers has to do with, with the power of, of metaphor to connect things. That, um a belief uh, that, yeah, has to do with metaphor.
1: I'm not sure why this particular poem comes to mind, but would would you be willing to read um, How I Became Impossible?
0: Oh, yeah, I'd love to. How I Became Impossible. I was born shy, congenitally unable to do anything profitable, to see anything in color, to love plums, with a marked aversion to traveling around the room, which is perfectly normal in infants. Who wrote this were my first words. I did not like to be torched. More snow fell than was able to melt. I became green-eyed and in due time traveled to other countries where I formed opinions on hard, cold, shiny objects and soft, warm, nappy things. Late in life, I began to develop a passion for persimmons and was absolutely delighted when a postcard arrived for the recently departed. I became recalcitrant, spending more and more time with my rowboat. All my life, I thought polar bears and penguins grew up together playing side by side on the ice, sharing the same vista, bits of blubber, and innocent lore. One day, I read a scientific journal. There are no penguins at one pole, no bears on the other. These two, who were so long intimates in my mind, began to drift apart, each on his own flow, far out into the glacial seas. I realized I was becoming impossible, more and more impossible, and that one day it really would be true.
1: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Mary Ruffell and you're listening to Between the Covers. I would love to uh, talk to you about Contradiction. That poem ends in in a contradiction as many of your poems uh, delve into them. And it feels like the, the realm of, of contradiction is often in the world of, of religion. And you use a lot of religious and mythological imagery and allusions in your poems. But it seems like in America, there's this sort of binary where if you aren't actually a, a practicing religious person, the only other option seems to be to be a secular humanist, someone who raises reason and Elevates reason and, and believes that the opposite of knowledge is ignorance, not wonder. But somehow it feels like you've, you've pointed to a lesser known or spoken of third way of using the language of religion, um, wonder, mystery, contradiction without necessarily espousing religion. Uh, can can you talk about how how those images are and themes are are operating for you in poems? Well,
0: knowledge is wonder to me, I suppose, or a form. Um, I've been interested in I uh, in religion uh, as far back as I can remember. Again, it starts in high school when you may be raised in one religion or another. I happen to have been raised Catholic. Um, not fervently I never went to catholic school but um <clears throat> that was an early obviously implant but in high school if you're a, a reasonably intelligent person creative person in high school you begin to be curious about world religions i remember in high school i said okay i'm i'm going to read the Pahavda gita i'm going to read the upanishads i'm going to you know study buddhism i'm going to read the quran which I actually read in high school and, of course, would, should reread it. But I, it was simply, I don't know where that came from, but it was always there and it has always been there. Actually, I was uh, rereading um, Kafka's letter last night in the hotel room. I picked it up at Powell's. Of course, it's been years since I read it, and a friend of mine had mentioned it, so I I bought it on sale at Powell's yesterday. And I was reading it last night, and it's only about 100 pages, and I came across... May I share it with you? Because this is an example of uh, what struck me as a person. He says, I have worried for as long as I can recall so deeply about asserting my spiritual existence that nothing else has ever mattered to me. Hmm. Now, I obviously copied that because it spoke to me and resonated with me, and I felt the same way, and I thought that was astonishing. I have worried for as long as I can recall so deeply about asserting my spiritual existence that nothing else has ever mattered to me. And he also, on the same page right before, which made me laugh, uh, the second did not. It sort of sent shivers down my spine. But this made me laugh. hes It's taken out of context from the middle of a sentence. He goes, my not altogether hopeless analytical ability. <laughs> <laughs> which, if you know, Kafka, you know, was trained as a lawyer, but whose writings are the the entire letter that this is in is a hundred pages of analyzing his relationship with his father, right. and he is he's insanely analytical. Hmm. I mean, his creativity comes out of insane analysis. And he says, my not altogether hopeless analytical ability. I, I just burst out laughing. So, <laughs> a lot
1: well. of people don't don't think of Kafka as funny, and and he is often funny. As oh, well. he's hysterical! He's hysterical. Well, speaking of this dedication to a uh, spiritual existence, you in your fifties, I've heard dedicated or rededicated yourself in a different way to poetry. Can you can you talk oh, about? I did. You didn't. No, this is news to me. Oh, what, really?
0: What did I do in my fifties? I'm sixty three now. What did I do in my fifties? <laughs> what did you hear? I love it.
1: I I had heard that you had made some sort of uh, pact with yourself. I mean, maybe this is just urban lore, right, or rural well, lore?
0: Tell me. <laughs> I want to know. Did I? I, did you? I I made a pact. What was the pact that I, don't I know. made? Before?
1: That's what I was going to ask. Oh, you were you. going to yeah.
0: ask me. You yeah. heard I rededicated myself to poetry and made a pact. Well, I have no memories, but it is true. Enormous life changes uh, occur in your 50s. Mm. You know, midlife crises, that's not urban lore. It's real, and every one of you will experience it. And <clears throat> your priorities shift. It's, you, everything just shifts, and you have to decide what's important and make decisions and go mm. with it. I did... I think it was in my 50s that I gave up seeking uh, full-time gainful employment. Mm-hmm. I did. I I had pursued that for many years and I stopped. I threw I threw my cover letter out, I threw all the names and I I I took myself off the job list and I mean f- for paid access to I know that I did that but
1: well, I can tell you um, where my imagination went.
0: Yeah, sure.
1: Um, <clears throat> speaking of letters, since you were talking about Kafka's letters, I was mm-hmm. thinking of Rilke's letters on Cezanne that he wrote mm-hmm. to his wife. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but he was really uh, obsessed with what Cezanne did in the latter part of his life. And the way that Rilke saw it was um, a sort of renunciation of everything. To become one thing, which was this—the final, the final like um, unification with his work—and Rilke, Rilke wanted that desperately and seemed extremely tortured on how to get there.
0: It's the, it's a never-ending struggle, and and yes, I suppose something like that happened. Um, but it, I'm not alone; it happens to lots of people, and also in a wide variety of ways. It, it it's fair to say that the first half of my life, well, my life's much more than half over, um, my life w- at one point was very compartmentalized, and I used to think about it, I used to ask friends, query them about their lives in the compartmental, and let me give you an example. Um, when you're still living with your family, you have your family, but you have school, and then you have the private world inside your head when you're listening to music with earphones on in your room or whatever. You have the, your school life, your private life, and then you have your gang of friends, if you're lucky, you know. Um, and that private life in the head would also be include reading, you know. So you, your life is, is compartmentalized. At least mine was. I didn't tell my parents everything that was going on in the other aspects. And it continued to be that way for me um, for a very long time. And then... Uh, eventually, you enter into um, intimate relationships, and you have partners, and there's that, and then you get a job, but you still have the life of your mind, mean, um, you have a life in a community. Um, my life was always felt compartmentalized, and it slowly became less and less compartmentalized, and I'm I no longer feel all our lives are compartmentalized to an extent, but I no longer feel um, sharp divisions. My life does feel unified. I feel, uh, it's really hard to describe, but on Mondays in the laundromat, it's not a different part than if... I'm doing erasure in the morning, it feels like it's just one one unit of living Mm. that I I don't turn. My being a poet or artist doesn't get turned on and off. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get turned on and off. Mm. That's for sure. It's not something I do between the hours of X and Y. Yes, And that's a a wonderful feeling. And it's why nobody should fear aging. Aging has negative aspects to it, obviously. But you should never fear aging because you have no idea the freedom, the the absolute freedom inherent in aging is astounding and mind-blowing. You no longer care what people think. Um, as soon as you become invisible, uh, which happens much more uh, quickly uh, to women than men, there, I- in, there is a freedom that's astounding. And all your authority figures drift away. Your parents die. <laughs> and yes, of course it's heartbreaking, but it's also wonderfully freeing. They're, they, they're always authority figures, whether negatively or positively. And you don't have teachers anymore, right? And feelings of insecurity or competitiveness, they, everything just drifts away in terms of what keeps, yeah, authority. You wake up and there are no authority figures. It's very freeing. Mm. Yeah, and no one's watching you.
1: Very freeing. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Mary Rufele, and you're listening to Between the Covers. To f- further this this polarity between wonder and knowledge, you emphasize the importance of wasting time, and which is another way in which I think um, the, the enterprise of poetry is in opposition to uh, the everyday current of like American culture of mm-hmm. progress and uh, building. constructing a life uh, on a monument to to pass on to someone else can can you talk about what wasting time is and and how that relates to poetry
0: well i can i can only speak for myself of course but wasting time is my idea of absolute happiness my idea of happiness is not the next person's but my idea of happiness is to have an entire day where I have nothing to do and no desire to do anything and that I just wander around I, I've tried for a very long time, for a number of years now to spend at least one day a week in which I do not turn the doorknob of my apartment I do not leave for any reason, and that's always the happiest day of the week. It's not always possible, but I suppose for many people their idea of happiness would be, "Oh, we have Saturday off. Let's go to the opera, or pack the car and go to the beach, or let's." uh, My idea of happiness is to do nothing. My idea of happiness is to want wander around, it could be I could just go out the door and take a leisurely walk and wander down. There's a river not far from where I live that I can walk along. It's very stony. It's more like a rushing stream. Um, but to just be inside my apartment wandering around and my mind will go from one thing to another, I find that wasting time allows me to be Uber attentive, which is a state I love to inhabit. And so I just kind of cruise, you know. And I'm not actively uh, writing, but it's on those days that I'm doing nothing and wasting time that a piece of writing will inevitably it's inevitable that one will come out of it absolutely inevitable It's the hmm. only activity I can think of
1: in which the end result inevitable end result will be a piece of writing it it reminds me this idea of one day where you don't touch the doorknob reminds me of um, the spirit of the Jewish Sabbath in the sense that you don't ex- absolutely you don't exchange money you don't turn on any lights you don't yeah. you don't do anything that furthers your life in a in a
0: I came close to converting when I yeah <laughs> heard all all of when I learned more and more about all of that. I thought it was the most wonderful thing yeah. um yeah that I'd ever heard. I love that idea of keeping the sabbath and you know we've lost all of that. I mean even, you know, in Christianity, you know, there were you couldn't buy anything on Sunday. The stores were all everything shut down on Sunday. And the general population of this country the demand was no we don't want that we want life to continue as is but and for most people staying home alone all day uh i mean i'm i'm married but i'm fortunate enough my partner enjoys uh uh actually is better at wasting time than i am wow yeah um and that can be alarming when you say something like <laughs> that. But uh, I, it's not boring to to stay home alone and wander around and do nothing, you know. And and Ameri- uh, many American people they have in the back in their garage or their attic or a closet in their apartment, all these forgotten projects, endless projects. Well, when will I get to organizing the? Well, this is terribly old-fashioned of me, but the, the photograph album, I suppose that's not a project for today's world. Or when will I, you know, go through the books or the CDs, or when will I make that recipe that I've always wanted to make and never have? It's endless. Um, yeah.
1: Could, could I, we hear, hear Faster should... Love is All There Is? Oh, yeah. That and, seems like a, a nice yeah. segue to that poem. I think it's in Trances of the Blast, actually.
0: So waste time is my, if you're listening, waste time. That's my, the artist's advice to you, is to waste time. This is called Faster Love is All There Is. There is nothing faster than more faster love. Faster love is all there is. As it is 403 and life takes another amazing and distressful turn. As when a seagull picks up a french fry and becomes human. What are we to do at sea with our logarithms when faster love is all there is? When April has 46 days, after which it can't go on, floating on the mattress, so it rises so we can see the flowers it was once upon and a few strands of brownish hair. When we tiptoe down the hall for ice, when ice falls out of the chute and into the bucket, when a cube falls through the grate and is gone when we huddle in our sea of cars, when we suffer muchly from glare in the face and keep the eyes alive with nothing more than an eyedropper, when we never went snorkeling but nonetheless sensed people are more capable of floating by than any other creature. Stop, stop, pretty water. Raise a cup of kindness to
1: them. As it is, there's nothing faster. Faster, love, it's all there is. Been listening to poet Mary Rufel. Mary, last summer at at the Tin House uh, writer seminar, you gave a lecture on, uh, and part of the theme of the lecture was a, a growing alienation that you were feeling towards the the upcoming generation of students, and and particularly in in relationship, I think, to their relationship to technology. Correct. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And and partly, um, I'm curious, do you feel like there's been a, a qualitative shift in, in relationships to technology, or is it a matter of degree around, say, electricity and the telephone and, and planes, for instance? No,
0: it has to do with the uh, freedom of aging. Uh, it's directly related to that. I have nothing against technology per se. What I have is the right, as a private human being, to pay attention to what I want to pay attention to. And I choose not to pay attention to technology except to a degree that is more limited than the average citizen. I have the right to say no. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying no for political reason. I could talk about it in those terms. Of course I could talk about about it in those terms. I could talk about our government, you know, having access to telephone records. I could talk about what happens to old cell phones when they're in piles in India and kids are picking up parts that have radio. I could go there. I don't want to go there because all that could be said about uh, paper industry or whatever. So I'm not going to go there. It's just my right to pay attention to what I want to pay attention to. And I think we do Uh, live in a culture where the culture dictates what you're supposed to pay attention to. And many, many young people, I mean, young people have always been under peer pressure, at least since the rise of youth culture after the Second World War. But now more than ever, we're under some sort of cultural pressure to um what's the word stay wired tuned when you but plugged in mm-hmm. uh, Net network network that's the word social networking and things like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and I, I'm just not vaguely interested I'm just not interested that's my right the right to I have the basic human right to remain private and to and to pay attention to what I want so if I want to watch a look at a bug uh, pay attention to a bug that's crossing the table or the road that's my right and more and more my the younger students in their 20s they can't conceive of a life without social network hmm. They're, they they can't conceive of it i do have i ask students to uh, attempt to unplug uh, one day a week and for many it's a life changing experience and they get it and they like it and for others and i really i deeply respect this they're very honest and they say i can't do it i
1: tried i can't do
0: it so it just has to do with my right to privacy and to pay attention to what i want i'm not on a crusade against it
1: well let me let me ask you uh, something that i was curious about from Madness, Rack and honey a line that i really loved in your essay poetry in the moon um you say Neruda, in his poem, Nocturnal Establishments, calls himself a surviving worshipper of the heavens, which is what many poets are, I think. Yet some say there are two things that call this into question, postmodern theory and technology, which are inseparable. What does that mean?
0: Well, postmodernism has many different tenets to it and is constantly changing. But one of the tenets of postmodernism is the idea of global village and interconnectedness and um, uh, free, you know, free flowing between genres? Okay, the breakdown of genres, the breakdown, the breakdown of demarcation um, in architecture. It's you throw all the styles together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in design, um, uh, the central uh, one way to des- describe the impact of postmodernism would be to say, what is the snowboard? Is it a ski or a skateboard? You know, there's an example that you can t- see. Now, many of, another interesting thing is younger students were born into a postmodern world. They don't remember the world before postmodernism. I do. And um, OK, so it's this demarcation is gone. and. Technology has enabled that to an extraordinary extent where the free, endlessly free-flowing information from all sides coming together. I don't know. I'd have to think maybe a little more. But, I I mean, technology and postmodernism came into being at the same time. They have to be related. You know, they came into being in the... um, 60s and 70s in small um postmodern theory in France, you know, in small pockets it really didn't hit American campuses in in a big way until the early 80s. And that's when personal computers were on the rise and Steve wasn't Steve Jobs was out there doing what he was doing to change the world and so they Something was happening, the same zeitgeist was happening that formed these things simultaneously.
1: Hmm. Well, I'd love to ask you a couple probably naive questions yeah. about poetry. I, I came to poetry late, and mm-hmm. I came to writing and reading mostly through fiction and story, mm-hmm. only later on into mm-hmm. poetry. so um, forgive the uh the questions mm-hmm. if they seem obvious mm-hmm. to you, but Two things that struck me about poetry that I don't see nearly as often in, in narrative fiction are visual art as a topic of poetry, like this, this charge between poets who write about painting or write about seeing, and uh, also a fascination with uh, the non-human other and even putting projecting one's consciousness both into animals and plants, but also into objects. And these things seem to be far less common in uh, mainstream literary fiction to me. And I, I'm curious if that strikes you as true and if, if you have any thoughts on why.
0: Well, that's interesting. I think it, it is true. Well, the first is true. Painting has always been a subject. Did poets poets fall in love with painting and they want to write about it? And... Painters fall in love with a poet. I mean, look at Cy Twombly, and they want to uh, paint lines from Dante. So it works both ways. You know, artists love other artists and, and other genres, and so there's always going to be cross-fertilization there. Does it happen in 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 novels? Well, maybe not as much. I, I don't know. Um, look at uh, Donna Tart The Goldfinch. It's right. all about, you know, I mean, in it's not. The narrative's not directly, but there's, you know, a characters obsessed with a painting. A, p- a painting is central to it, and you can, you know, in Proust, you have um, that central motif of the piece of music that keeps keeps occurring. It just seems natural to me, For, but I know what you mean, and I probably it has to do with the fact that a painting and a poem Inhabit a different time frame than a story. They are both mom- momentary inhabitors, inhabitors of the moment, more than a story or novel or a narrative. So they would lend themselves to some of the same concerns. Stilled moment, is there such a thing, you know, um? I mean, time does pass in a painting if you're looking at it. But stilled moment, I'd have to go for stilled moment, probably cliched answer, but stilled moment. Now, for the other, uh, inhabiting a non-human other, oh, I love that, that's much more up my alley. I I write more poems from that obsession than uh, I don't write a lot of aphrastic poems. I didn't even know what that word meant until one of my students told me. Um, sozeki, Japanese novelist. I am a cat, written from the viewpoint of a cat. Uh, that comes to mind.
1: So it it is done in fiction. It seems like it's done yeah. much more in fable and and fairy tale. Yes, Aesop's fables. Right. Yeah. Tell yeah. us, tell us, tell our listeners what Erasure is. I know you mentioned at the beginning that you had, at mm-hmm. one point wanted to be a painter, or a visual artist, and that this is really fulfilling that desire for you. Can, can you talk about
0: um, well, it's erasure a, in
1: that regard? It's hard to describe,
0: but you get it in an s- instant if you can see it.
1: There are examples
0: on my website. Yes, it's true. I have a website, no computer. I take old, small, beat-up, beat-up for the most part, 19th century texts, and I take a jar of white-out, And I erase words on the page, leaving a select few to create new text. That's what it is. It's erasing
1: text, but leaving some intact, words that you choose, to create new text. And you are erasing works that are not yours. They're
0: not mine. They're not famous. They're not they're not books that are read anymore. They're very obscure, unread, unknown
1: works. For the most part, there are a few exceptions. How, if at all, does your your process of erasure influence your creation of poems? Do you find that it changes the way you revise or the way that you Mm. see the words on the page when you're Mm. putting your own words on the page? It never had any influence in the beginning. Well, I've done,
0: um, I'm working now on my 78th erasure book. The, the erasure work for me is I'm making a physical object. It's one of a kind. It's a little book. It's full of color and images that I paste in or draw in. So it's making, um, it's a physical it's a physical act of making something, and I really, really love that in my life. Mm. And I know that we make poems and that they're objects, but it's different. It really is different. Um, so in the beginning, the answer was would be no. But in the last, I want to say, two years, I have been—most uh, of the poems that I've written— get their opening lines from a page of erasure. So increasingly, I'm using the text from an erasure book in my my work. Uh, Suddenly, they've become, once they're completed, they become, I suppose, what another poet would call their notebook with scraps of language. I get those scraps of language from the erasure books. So, in that sense, they're feeding. But mm-hmm. in terms of arranging on a page, no, no, I still I'm very boring. I'm boring, ordinary poet formally. I It's just blocks, and I know a lot of people complain about that, but I don't care. you know, so no, I, I don't see myself moving to some open field space on the page because the erasures very much look like that. The spacing is all over the page.
1: So you, you intentionally choose nineteenth-century works, mm-hmm. um, not famous works, even though I, you have yes. some a resonance with yeah. Laura Richards as yes. as a writer. Yes, but uh, She's not read anymore. Right. I mean. um, how is that different than when you wrote um, Minor Ninth Chord, the reduction of the Robert Walser story? Is uh, how when you when you approach, uh, I'm guessing a story that you right. had some admiration for, and you created a poem out yes. of it.
0: Yes. Yes. I don't remember writing that. I don't remember what I did, but I can assure you I didn't take White out and erase the the Valsa story. I think probably what I did was I wrote down my favorite lines, perhaps, and then tried to combine them in some way. I know I didn't erase the story. I just used my eyes scanning. That I remember, but very little beyond that and was I doing making erasure books when I wrote that poem? Beats me.
1: I, I don't know. I love your line that in every novel there's a story, in every story there's a poem, in every poem there's a haiku. Yes, yes.
0: That's a fun project right there. Take a novel and write a short st- story from it, and then uh, take a short story and write a poem from it, take a poem, turn it into a haiku. Things can be endlessly reduced,
1: oh, and I love all those forms. I love all of those forms. With all of your your play in your work and contradiction, um, I think that a lot of your poems can be read in different ways. And and when I was listening to Ron Charles interview you, uh, it seemed like he took a lot of these um, contradictions as um, tongue in cheek and with a, a as witty and humorous. And when Matthew Dickman was talking about you a couple weeks ago, he was saying, Mary Rufel does not use irony. She means everything she says. So, But he also qualified that saying, uh, but she'll probably contradict me on this. So I'm curious what role irony does play in your work, if, if any role, in your mind.
0: I do mean everything I say. But I mean like all things, we do and we don't. I know um, for many years I would give readings and the audience would laugh and there were many poems I read where I was made very uncomfortable by the laughter because I thought that the work was not funny it was if anything was a bit sad um, and then I had a, a friend the poet Jack Myers who's who is dead now who said uh he's in Mary everyone processes and hears the you know appropriate for their moment in life and you can't control that and and you have to you know let that go that's and and that helps i never after that i i didn't i didn't mind but then when i was reading the proofs for the selected i was laughing out loud Hmm. when i because I don't go back to my work once it's—I just don't go back to it or read it. And I, when I was reading The Proofs for the Selected, I kind of got it that I was funny. And I remember laughing out loud and saying, oh, this is very funny. I love humor. I have a terrific sense of humor. It's—humor um, is really important to endurance and survival, let's face it. And it's inseparable from tragedy and I want both comedy and tragedy in my work. I, mm-hmm. I, I seek to, I, I not consciously seek, but they're all mixed up. But I, I think Matthew's, I know what he means when I mean everything I say and I say what I mean. I'm not um, consciously trying to be ironic. I think in another essay I, I write about um, that moment When you're in grad school and you read Berryman and you read, you know, Life, Friends is boring, but to say so, you're admitting you have no inner resources, whatever. Life, Friends is boring. In grad students, it's it's important that they laugh and laugh and laugh. That becomes an in-joke. But in fact, everyone who knew Berryman said he didn't have a shred of irony in him. Hmm. He meant that. And I can remember having the experience, probably in my 50s, where the profound seriousness and sadness of the boredom of life hit me full in the face, and I understood that line in the deepest, most serious sense. And that line I've never laughed at since. Hmm. Um, I guess it's easier to discuss this in someone else's work than, than my own. Well, you were at the reading the other night. I'll just talk publicly ab- about this. I read an aunt, a letter my great Aunt Mille wrote, and it's not the first time I've read it, and the younger people in the audience laugh at it. There was laughter.
1: Mm.
0: That letter is unspeakably... Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. But many members of the audience find um, the repetition, because her memory is failing, is funny, the way she repeats herself. It's heartbreaking. It's sad. I want to weep, you know, when I read that letter.
1: Hmm.
0: And there's been laughter in more than once in audiences. but then again they're young and as she says in the letter one day they too will be old and one day they will have the same experience and i know that is true and you have so i totally forgive mm. forgive laughter on the part of young people you know we're young and we hear the we hear the word breasts or bosom and we all collectively laugh that experience in grade school it's perfectly natural i am not gonna, i'm not about to con- condemn that but it is. I think it's a sad letter, and there was a lot of laughter.
1: Hmm. Um, and what about in terms of your own art right now? Is there an area where there is a lot of of juice and and passion more than another? Are, are you particularly? Yes, I'm
0: much more interested in um, making erasures and writing prose than poems. Really, I poems. I I don't think I have it in me to write a poem that's any different than any poem I've ever written before. Hmm. I'm just. It might change, but...
1: Um, Does that mean you end up writing less poems?
0: Because no, because they keep popping into my head, and I wish it would stop. <laughs> um, they keep popping into my head, and I don't want to write them anymore, but I keep writing them, and the, right. the stuff I want to do, I I don't, I either don't have time or they're not popping into my head. It's very frustrating. I don't yeah. want to write poems anymore, and, and they just keep popping into my head, but... Um, I do, and I have—I suppose I should uh, use this moment to plug my new erasure book. Next week, a brand er new—an erasure, only the second one, is being published in full color art facsimile. I'm very excited about that, Uh, which means, unfortunately and sadly, it's prohibitively expensive because it's like an art book. Mm -hmm. And it's called Incarnation of the Now. That's the erased title and it's C double publications in Minneapolis and only sold online through their website and only 300 copies are being printed but bad news folks it costs 50 bucks which is expensive but it was it was it's highly produced and they're just a not for profit they're not
1: for profit but that's what it costs and can we anticipate another book of essays from you eventually and you have so many good ones that have come out since madness rack and honey
0: oh um no because i had no intention of of i didn't write them for publication and um there is irony in this but if you and if you read the introduction i mean i i don't like writing lectures and i don't foresee Another book of them, and for I'm not sure I would live long enough to, I mean, that's many, it's like 20 years of mm. having to write them. Um, and yes, I, I've written, uh, there are two that I have that aren't in the book, but um, another book of lectures,
1: no, there'll
0: be another book of prose. Another book but of my prose. My next wave
1: book will be prose oh, in great. fall of uh, 2017. Well, maybe we can finish today with the poem Lullaby.
0: Oh, okay. I want to thank you for having me on K-Boo. 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 Go K-Boo. I love Portland. I love Oregon. I want to move to Oregon, but I think I would live in a little community on the
1: coast or something. That sounds know. like a good idea. Does that sound like a good idea? It does.
0: <laughs> Lullaby. My inability to express myself is astounding. It is not curious, or even faintly interesting. But like some fathomless sum, a number, a number the sum of equally fathomless numbers, each one the sole representative of an ever ripening infinity that will never reach the weight required by the sun to fall. There is nothing on the ground to pick up and examine. It is too far back among the leaves to reach. And here I am walking idly, passing it from below, with only a faint breeze to remind me there's anything there, the merest rustle of which quiets me down to the point I am
1: able to sleep at all. It was a great pleasure having you on Between the Covers today, Mary.
0: Thank you so much.
1: We're talking today to the poet and essayist and erasure artist, Mary Ruffel. You've been listening to Between the Covers, and I'm David Namen, your host.